The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Praise the Lord, church. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and turn to the New Testament book of Titus. New Testament book of Titus. There are three pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Titus chapter number 3. While you're finding your place there, I just want to say, man, great singing today, church. Just wonderful corporate singing. And did y'all enjoy that choir special? Can I, can, I get a, can I get a good amen on that today? Amen. Amen. I like that. Man, that does my heart good just to listen to that. Wonderful, wonderful singing. Now we've opened the Word of God. Let's pray that the Lord would add His blessing to it. Let's read Titus chapter number 3. Today we'll be in the first seven verses. Verse number 1 reads this way. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, aren't you glad for those divine conjunctions? But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the proclamation of His Word. Would you join me in a word of prayer together as we enter upon this time? Now, Father, we do come to You now, and we are just rejoicing today in Your kindness, in Your mercy in the ability that you gave us to be able to sing and worship you with our brothers and sisters, to give, to pray, and now to break the bread of life from the Word of God, and in a few minutes to be able to take of the Lord's table to remember the very presence of Christ in the bread and in the juice until your Son comes again to make the world right again. And so now I pray for every heart and every mind and every soul that is under the sound of my voice that we would be prepared to listen to you, that our hearts and minds would be changed by the truth of Scripture, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and exalted and honored, and that we find him to be sufficient for every moment in every area of life. I pray for my friends that came in here today, Lord, and they are on top of the spiritual mountain. May you continue to help them to breathe the air of heaven in joy. 
I pray for my brothers and sisters who find themselves deep within the valley of life. I pray that they would find you to be the lily of the valley and the grass to grow greener in the depths of the valley as they learn to trust in you. And for the vast majority of the people in this room who simply are on one side or the other of the mountain, either crawling up or falling down, may we continually remember that Jesus is good. May we learn to live our lives in light of what you have done for us. And we shall love you and bless you and thank you. We do all of this in advance already. For it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we do pray today. Amen. Election ads make me gag. Amen? <laughs> the only good thing about this coming Wednesday morning is that Tuesday is over with. No matter what side of the aisle that you fall on, no matter your political beliefs or not, nobody is ever as bad as those ads make it out. You watch those ads, you'd think the other person is the worst person in the entire world. There's all kinds of bickering and fighting and arguing that go on. And, and, and you know what I find is that sometimes not just good people argue over those things, but God's people lose their minds and their testimonies because they forget that they are citizens of heaven, which should transform our citizenship here on earth and in our land. Whether it be on your Facebook account or your Twitter account or whether it be in daily conversations uh, or maybe it is in the privacy of your own home. But the things that you say and feel and know on the inside toward other people that don't think your way, especially in these hotbed election seasons, they can be an area of our own life that is wrong and not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it be an election season or whether it just be with another brother or sister that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with or your neighbor or a friend or a loved one, my goodness, brothers and sisters, we ought to be living our lives in such a way that we remember that we are God's people and that it transforms the way that we live. So the main idea from this passage today is that we need to be reminded that we are God's people so that we can live godly lives in an ungodly world. Let me say that for you again if you're taking notes today. The main thrust of these first seven verses is that we need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit, by the Apostle Paul, by the Word of God, we need to be reminded that we are God's people, that we do not belong to ourselves, that we do not stand on an island by ourselves, that we, we belong to God. If, if today you would say in this room, I am a child of God, I have believed in Jesus, then you must live the kind of life that reminds you that you are God's people so that we can live, whether it's on a Sunday, election Tuesday, or any given Wednesday and Friday in the rest of the year, that we live godly lives in a world and in a society that is godless. Somewhere in the world around us, we need to be lights that are set on a hill, not hidden behind the bushel. We need to live lives that are different than those around us so that they see the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God coming through our very lives so that they see Jesus when they see us. 
In the context of this passage, Paul charges Titus, right, to organize the local church leadership, to silence the false teachers. You'd find that in chapter number two. And he tells him to instill a godly Christian lifestyle in the brothers and sisters are there where Titus is ministering. And so Paul wants to remind us here at EBC, right here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, to live godly lives in every area of our life. Whether in the voting booth, with your neighbor, with your schoolmates, with your friends, with your enemies, that we learn to live every day godly lives. And in this passage, he reminds us of three truths. First of all, from verse number one and two, he reminds us of our present responsibility. Now, let me read those verses again, and you read along silently with me. Remind them. You, you see, I, I didn't invent the, the sermon, right? It's right there. Paul says to Timothy or to Titus, he says, I want you to remind these believers of some things, which automatically tells us that we are people who are prone to forget. We are people who are prone to live in our own value and our own power and our own ability rather than remembering that we are God's children. And so he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Or it's a generic term meaning for every person in the world. Our present responsibility can be divided into two portions, verse number one and verse number two. In verse number one, that is that he has called us to good works. He has called us to good deeds, to live right lives with our actions, not just with our words, but that the way that we live and the things that we do, that there is an obedience to Christ and that we are called to good works. Look back at verse number one. He says, first of all, remind them, and you might want to highlight or underline where you see the words in your English translation, to be, and you'll find that that will divide the text for you. He says, first of all, to be subject to the rulers and to the authorities. Now, you know, the great thing about us working through the scripture is I didn't plan to preach this text on the Sunday before election Tuesday. It just happens to be where we are. But in the context of this passage, the principalities, the rulers, the authorities here, the apostle Paul is speaking about governmental authorities. And rest assured today, dear brother or sister, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, the ruling principalities and authorities that the Apostle Paul is writing under are much worse than anybody in our country today. We're talking about the kind of people that were putting Christians dipped in tar and up on stakes and burning them alive. Nobody's doing that yet. Close, but not yet. He says to them, first of all, to be subject to the rulers and authorities. Brothers and sisters, the way that we live our life should be one of being submissive. I think one of the things that is missing from our evangelical congregations, both in this church and around the world, is that there is a lack of submissiveness, first to the Lord, second to our church authorities, and then to our governmental authorities. But the Lord wants not only our actions, but our attitude to be the one that is submissive to those who are in authority over us. And we live the American life where nobody's going to tell me, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to be my own person, I'm going to do it my way. I want you to understand that if you do it your way, you'll die and go into a Christless eternity. 
Nobody ever comes to faith in Christ unless they come to the point where they are willing to lay down their weapons of warfare and submit their lives to Jesus. But I want you to understand that our actions and our works and our deeds are to be submissive to the Lord, not only at the moment of salvation, but in the everyday living of our life. God has called us to be submissive in our actions and our attitudes, even to the ruling government of our country. Now, better loosen this up because I'm preaching by myself today. Not only does he call us to an attitude of submissiveness, but look at what he says. He says, to be subject to the rulers and to the authorities. And then he goes a little step further and he says, to be obedient. You see, it's not just that we have a proper attitude of being submissive to those who are in authority over us, but it's that we actually willingly obey. And I want to say to you that even in our government, if they're not asking us to do something that is contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ or the teaching of Scripture, then it is our, not only our civic duty, but it is our Christian duty to have a submissive spirit and to willingly obey. That goes on a national level. That also goes in our church life. And that goes in our home life. You see, if you're the kind of Christian that can't easily mark out where you're being submissive to somebody else who is in authority, then I want to ask you, are you really following Jesus? And, and don't think for a moment that all you get to say is, well, I just submit to Jesus and nobody else. That's not the way His church works. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches that we are to be submissive and obedient to those who are over us in the Lord. I know that's hard to hear today. I'm not telling you how you have to think politically. I'm not telling you how you, how you have to think socially. I, I'm not diving into all of that. I know all the arrows that would come my way. So I, as a good pastor, I stay out of some of that. But what I am saying is, wherever you find yourself on all of that spectrum, it had better run through the sieve of Scripture so that you are submissive and obedient to the Lord and to those who are over you. God has called us to that kind of life. And I, I want to say to you, if you struggle with being submissive and obedient to the godly rulers that the Lord has placed in your life, and you find yourself constantly kicking against the pricks, either with your actions or with your words, you need to repent today and say, Lord Jesus, that is not the right spirit. The Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And if Christ himself, the Bible says that he learned obedience and that he gained favor among God and his friends. And if Christ Jesus needed to submit himself to the Father and become obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross, and he's calling us to follow him, then we too must be submissive and obedient. Or we're not Christ followers. Not only to be submissive and obedient, but look back at verse number one. It's like he just puts the knife in and twists it hard, my friends. He says there to be subject or submissive, right? So our attitude must be right. And then he says to be obedient. But then he says to be ready for every good deed. You know what that means? 
That means that when you're called upon to do something by an authority in your life, that it's not just that you submit to that and say, yes, that's the proper authority, and it's not just that you obey the command, but it's that you are ready to do it with a right heart. We were watching yesterday, and by the way, the parenting conference was fantastic yesterday. You, you should, uh, not me, you should be thinking uh, uh, Mark and Krista and Jamie and those who provided food. I mean, there's there a lot of other folks that were working in this thing. It was a great day for parents in the life of our church yesterday. In the middle of the video, they were talking about how, uh, you know, if little Johnny or little Susie, if you say, I want you to go clean up your toys, and they're walking down the hall saying, I don't want to do this, I don't have to do that, and they're putting toys in the toy chest, but their attitude is not one that's ready to serve and to do what the authority has placed in their life. Don't call that obedience. It's not obedience. God's called upon us to have a submissive and obedient heart and one that is ready to do good that is called upon us. And just so you know, where it says good deeds at the end of verse number one, it's speaking of those that take place in a community or a civic situation. God has called us. Ephesians 2.10 says that He saved us by His grace, not our own works, but He's called us to good, good, good works. And God wants us to do that. So we serve and minister, and we visit, and we do all kinds of things. And all of those things are wonderful. But God has called you in the course of your life to be involved in your community as a good citizen and a godly citizen, being obedient and submissive and ready to do right when called upon. Our present responsibility with our actions is to live that way. Verse number two says, our present responsibility also deals with our words. Look at the change that's made. So verse number one, it's more action. Verse number two, it's more words-based. To malign no one. Now we could stop right there and all of us boo-hoo and cry and come down here and get right with Jesus, right? Is there anybody in here today that's going to say, I've never maligned anyone? You might say that, it's because you don't have any idea what the definition of that word is, but have you ever spoken ill of somebody to their face or behind their back or under your breath or in your mind? You see, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Earlier this week, I... Uh, I wrote it down. Connie and I were laughing a little bit. Uh, she came home. It must have, it must have been a divine illustration because she came home from the grocery store and, and she said, you're never going to believe this. I'm standing in line and I'm getting ready to pay for, my, pay for the groceries. And the person behind me just reeks. They stink. I mean, it's terrible, terrible. It stinks. I'm trying to get downwind of the person and I look behind me and they look fine. They look like a normal person and, and I just can't figure it out. And she says, as I start to push the car, I really the guy has about 25 bulbs of garlic. <laughs> and I told her, this is the intersection of a divine illustration because as she was at the grocery store, I was burping one baby on Monday and trying to keep the other one from grabbing the blinds and I was talk texting some of my sermon into the phone, right? And I, I was trying to say, we need to have godly words. And do you know what came out? We need to have garlic words. <laughs> Divine illustration. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, God does not want you to have garlic words. 
But isn't it true in our life that, it, that many times our words reek of garlic rather than smelling like the rose of Sharon, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember what your parents taught you when you were little? If you can't say anything good, then just don't say anything at all. That might not be a bad place to start, but maybe what we need to do is say, there's something wrong with my heart, and that's what's keeping me from saying something nice. And so rather than just being quiet and holding in all of the feelings of hate and meanness and anger that I have towards somebody, I need to get right with Jesus so that the words that come out of my mouth are not maligning. They're not hurtful, but they're peaceable and gentle and kind. I was walking in here, uh, kind of opened my Pandora box of my life up a little bit. I was walking in here and praying earlier this week and praying for you and praying for my own heart and praying through this text. And I'd had a conversation with, um, with a friend of mine. And they said something to me. Uh, don't worry, nobody in the church. Long, long way, far, far away. But over the course of the conversation, they said something that jabbed me and stuck in my crawl. Now, none of y'all look at me all pious because I know you've had the same conversations with people, okay? They said something and it hurt and it bothered me and it made me angry. And I spent 10 minutes at my prayer time walking around this sanctuary trying to think about how I was going to answer them back. Well, this is what I'm going to say and that's what they're going to say, but this is what I'm going to say behind that. And I, have you ever played that kind of commentary out in your own mind? Mm-hmm. Everybody go like this, please, so I don't feel alone. You know you do that. You play these scenarios out in your mind. And then I read the end of verse number two, this little phrase, or uh, yeah, verse number two, showing every consideration for all people. And it was as if the Lord kind of spoke into my life. Listen, it wasn't some divine voice from heaven that sounded like James Earl Jones, all right? It, it just, in my heart, through the word of God, it's like, why do you need to fight that battle? Why, why do you need to perpetuate an argument? Why don't you just let that go? And why don't you show consideration to them and realize that they might have not had the best week and there might be some things going on in their life that I don't have any idea about? I don't have to win, but I am called to show consideration. A lot of times when I do premarital counseling, I remind young couples that you will fight, okay? I mean, and if you're in here and you're going to get married, you are going to fight. You're going to have an argument. And my wife graciously taught me, not long into our marriage, that arguing, the point is not to win the argument. The point is that the other person is understood. And I just wonder how many of us in here today need to think about our present responsibility that we are acting like mature believers with our actions and we're acting like mature believers with our words, that we're not tearing people down, but we're speaking gently and kindly 
and peaceably, and we're showing consideration for every person that we come into contact with. And you know what? The Bible says judgment should start at the house of God. Maybe we ought to think about the way that we treat each other in this room. The things that we say to each other, the things that we say about each other, the things that we say about each other when the other one's not around, and we show consideration and kindness and mercy. Our present responsibility as a believer is to do good works and to have good words, not garlic words, okay? Now, all of this is built on the next few verses. Look, at, uh, look if you would, at verse 3 through 5. And I think simply I would just say this. He reminds us of our past condition. Verse 3 through 5. Let me read it. That way you're kind of getting it in a little bit, and then I'll say a few words about it. He says here, For we also once were foolish ourselves. This isn't actually a part of the outline, but in my devotional time, I just had to pause there. I even put a box around that. And I, the whole week, no matter the whole sermon, listen, if you don't get the whole, uh, the whole sermon, I want you to get the sermon. But I, I just, I, devotionally, I just kept thinking about, look at that again. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And it isn't, don't you see what the Apostle Paul is saying indirectly? He's saying, this is the way you once were. And I had to put the brakes on and say, wait a minute, that's how I am now. That's how you are now. Forget about how you once were. That's how you are now. Foolish. Ah, oh, Lee, man. Things that come out of our mouth and the things that we do, and you look back and you say, that's foolishness. That's disobedience. I'm deceived. I'm enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I wonder how many in this room right now you have some silent, secret lust in your life that you are in prison to. <laughs> and here we back are again on Election Tuesday, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Hey, brothers and sisters, I want you to know something. I do not watch argumentative cable news shows. I stopped it. It was bad for my soul. I still know what's going on in the world. I get the news, okay? It's not good for your soul to argue and fuss and fight and have malice and anger and hatred. And it can't be good for your soul to watch that kind of stuff play out before your eyes all the time. Amen. Just be careful. I'm not telling you you can watch whatever you want. I'm just telling you, be careful. Uh, better, I better stop and teach for a moment. You see, everybody in this room agrees with me that if you read the Bible and you follow Jesus, that that will come on the inside and change you, and you'll naturally begin to speak and live like Jesus the more you take in Jesus. Is that correct? Everybody say amen, because that's right. So... If you watch hatred and malice and envy and frustration and fighting 
and you live in that cesspool all the time, what do you think is going to bubble up from the inside? Now you figure that out. Let me get back to the sermon, all right? I stopped preaching. I started meddling. I better get back. Look, verse number four and five, and then I'll, I'll just say a few words. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Maybe you just want to... That, that stood out to me this week. He saved us. God saved us by the work of Jesus. And then He says as much right here. He says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now look, the, the author's careful here with the prepositional phrase. Not your righteous deeds. But those deeds that are done in an effort in order to gain righteousness. God didn't save us according to us. What we have done, but according to His mercy. The, the word there, according to mercy, it has the concept of pushing down. The weight of heaven and God's mercy is what brings the salvation of Christ to the world. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. These are not two separate actions. They are all the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Word and the work of the Spirit in the heart of a human being that produces life transformation. Well, our past condition, let me say a quick couple of words. First of all, from verse number uh, 3, you, you notice here our past condition was one that was just Christless. In darkness... In bondage, isn't that what it says there, uh, in the equivalent, that we're deceived, that we were enslaved? That's who we were. I want to say to every believer in this room, don't go back to where you were. If you were in the heart of the dungeon of the prison, why would you go back and shut yourself in that prison? Christ has broken the bonds and released us and give us new hearts. So let's not live where we once were. But our past condition was one of darkness and in despair and in bondage. We were Christless, but we've been made clean. Look at verse number four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love. Hey, you want to see just a little interesting word study? Notice verse four. What does it say about God? His kindness and His love. Do you know the word for love here is a philanthropic. It, 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 is the, it is the kind of love that, that gives. In fact, that is the Greek word that's behind here. It means to give in His kindness and in His giving, loving loyalty. Now go back for one minute to the end of verse number 3 and look at what's true of us. Malice, envy, hateful, and hating each other. That's where we were. That's who we are, but not God. God's kind, and God's loving, and God is giving. And then look what it says at the end of verse number four. The word here is parousia, right? You often think about it in terms of when he will come again, right? That 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Everybody loves to speak about when Christ will come again. But in just a month or so, we will begin studying the first advent, the first parousia, the first appearing of the Lord. And when Jesus came into the world, he brought light to shine in the dark places and in the dark places of your heart. Our past condition was one of darkness and bondage. But when He appeared, He made us 
brought us into the light and broke our bonds. We were clean. Look at verse uh, 5. He saved us. And, And then you want to notice here the difference. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy. And he did it by the washing of regeneration. The word here, washing, is the same word that's used for the Old Testament word for the laver. That that is where you come to be made clean. And this word is used many times in the New Testament to speak about the word of God, the written word of God that has the power to wash and clean the souls of human beings. And it's done through the agency of the Spirit of God to the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about that old song, I saw the light, no more in darkness, no more in night. So I had that thought this week, and then I was thinking uh, about uh, the Spirit of God here, that He washes and He renews. And uh, I'm not sure where this came from, but I saw a commercial for some sort of soap that you could put on your face that washes and moisturizes all together. Ladies, y'all got anything like that in your cabinets? It washes and it moisturizes. You know, don't look at me. Hey, you got some men in here. I know. I know you get them pedicures, manicures, get them all washed up and moisturized. Kind of what the Holy Spirit does. He takes the Word of God and He washes our souls and He renews us. So that we all, all of us were at one point old and crusty and scaly, spiritually. You ready to go to lunch? The Spirit of God comes along and takes the Word of God and He washes us and He saves us and He renews us. One last thought for today, and we'll go into our time with the Lord's Supper. From verse number 6 through 7, I think we see our, are reminded of our future position. Our future position. Look what it says. Whom He poured out upon us richly. Ah, oh, don't you see the connection with verse number 5? By the washing and the renewing, and now He pours out the Spirit of God richly. And how does the agency of the Spirit of God get poured out into our life? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And why does all of that take place? So that being justified by His grace, that is, that we've been pardoned, that we've been cleaned, that our sin and the penalty thereof has been paid for by Jesus Christ, that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Two quick thoughts. First, I would say this from verse number 6. Our our future position is a present reality. You see, brothers and sisters in this church, we we believe in what's called an already not yet eschatology. You can impress your friends tomorrow. Simply what we mean is that when Jesus Christ came into the world, it was the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But it's not fully come. And everybody in this room looks to the day when King Jesus returns and makes everything right. But don't hold out and hold on and look for the future. The kingdom of God is a present reality through the Holy Spirit who is alive and well and living in your person right now as a believer. And a powerful hope. Our future is not only a present reality, it is a powerful hope. Verse number 7 
so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Reminded of a new book, I think it's worth reading, and it just says, Eternity is now in session. If you're waiting for eternity to get here, you've missed it. Eternity is right now. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you. And if you know Christ, you're living in eternity now. Let me finish by saying this. I had, um, had lunch with a, a friend this week. And at the end of lunch, he, he asked me, businessman, he says to me, he said, um, he said, when it comes to like church in my life or church and uh, people, he used general terms. I, I knew what was going on. You know, people that go to church and then they go to they, they're, they're regular life. You know what I mean? Like the regular life and then they come to church. How, how come it, it seems there's such a great divide between your, your church life and then my regular life? And, and I live over here and I, there's a lot of things that are real over here. And then I, I go to church and sing and, and we do this and that kind of thing. But they don't, they don't seem to meet. There's a great divide between my church life and my regular life. And, you know, of course, the answer to that is in the very question itself. The problem is that for a believer, there is no such thing as sacred and secular. There is no such thing as your church life and your regular life, my Christianity and my workaday world. No, for the believer, we always live in the sacredness of Christ. And so it's not a matter of compartmentalizing your religious life and then you go to school and you go to work and you have family and you do all of the things over here. No, what God wants you to do is broaden the sacredness of your Christian life and live every moment of your life, whether at the voting booth or whether in your school class or whether with a friend or whether at work, no matter where you are, that you are learning to live life in light of what Jesus has done. No area of your life should be left untouched by your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I said, if you go to church with the open heart to confess and believe and take what you learn and live that into the finer fabric of your life, you'll find that the gap will narrow until it's overlapping itself. And I just wonder how many of my brothers and sisters and friends in here today, you might not come to Pastor Steve and say it, but there's a gap in your life between when you walk out those doors and when you walk in. And you need to live all of your life, your present reality, in the power and the grace of what Jesus has done for you. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Hey, I'm not sure what your prayer life looked like this week, but right now is an opportunity for you to pray and just quietly talk with the Lord. If you're here today and you've heard that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Give your life to Him. If you don't know Him, trust Him right now. He'll save you. The vast majority of my friends in this room, I said, Christ is my Savior. Are you living right now with the present responsibility to work and with your words to bless people?
Do you recognize that you once were an unbeliever and been made clean by the grace of Christ? And do you live with a future hope that one day Christ will make all things right? Why don't you just talk with the Lord about where you are right now. Confess what needs to be confessed. And ask Him for mercy. And He'll give it to you because He loves you. Let me pray for us. And we'll enter in on our time. Our Father, we love You so much. And we are aware that Your love supersedes ours for You infinitely. In fact, the only reason why we can love You is because You first loved us. So I pray for every man and woman and boy and girl in this room today that we would be aware of Your love and kindness toward us. That You would help us to think about our present life when we leave here today, living a godly and a holy life that loves people and does good and speaks well and right, godly lives. Help us to do that. Where we failed, we ask for forgiveness. Help us. We come to this realizing that it's not just us picking ourselves up by the bootstraps, but that you sent your son to do what we could not do in our own he lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we needed. And He rose again and we trust Him today. And as my brother said in Sunday school earlier, we're going to live this week, Lord. Please help us to live with the eternal hope that one day You're coming again. And as we look to that eternal hope, may our present difficulties be a bit lighter. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.